We will be in God's Word as we always are in Genesis chapter 24, so you can take your Bibles and begin to turn there. Genesis 24 and a little bit into 25 is where we'll be this morning as we wrap up a really big chapter in the book of Genesis. We wrap up the life of Abraham, the patriarch, the one that we've seen walk faithfully with the Lord and receive these incredible promises. This is a beautiful ending to his story as the baton is now passed to Isaac, and that's where we'll be for the future here. So Genesis 24, we'll pick up at the end of that chapter in verse 62, and we'll read all the way to 25, verse 11. Genesis 24, verse 62. Let me remind you, brothers and sisters, this is the word of our living God. Now Isaac had returned from Beer Lahairoi and was dwelling in the Negev. And Isaac went out to meditate in the field toward evening. And he lifted up his eyes and saw, and behold, there were camels coming. And Rebekah lifted up her eyes. And when she saw Isaac, she dismounted from the camel and said to the servant, Who is that man walking in the field to meet us? The servant said, It is my master. So she took her veil and covered herself. And the servant told Isaac all the things that he had done. Then Isaac brought her into the tent of Sarah, his mother, and took Rebekah. And she became his wife, and he loved her. So Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. Abraham took another wife, whose name was Keturah. She bore him Zimran, Jokshan, Medan, Midian, Ishbek, Shua. Jokshan fathered Sheba and Dadon. The sons of Dadon were Ashurim, Letushim, and Leumim. The sons of Midian were Ephah, Epher, Hanak, Abadah, and Eldaah. All these were children of Keturah. Abraham gave all he had to Isaac, but to the sons of his concubines, Abraham gave gifts. And while he was still living, he sent them away from his son Isaac, eastward to the east country. These are the days of the years of Abraham's life, 175 years. Abraham breathed his last and died in a good old age an old man and full of years, and was gathered to his people. Isaac and Ishmael, his sons, buried him in the cave of Machpelah, in the field of Ephron, the son of Zohar the Hittite, east of Memory, the field that Abraham purchased from the Hittites. There Abraham was buried with Sarah, his wife. After the death of Abraham, God blessed Isaac, his son. And Isaac settled in Beer Lahairoi. This is the word of our Lord. Let's pray together. Gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, we acknowledge that you are faithful and true. You are the covenant-making, covenant-keeping God. You are Yahweh and the God of our fathers. And we know, Lord, that your steadfast love endures forever. 
So Lord, as we gather before you this morning, Lord, we ask that you would write your word on our hearts, that we might trust and obey you this morning. Help us, Father, to lean not on our own understanding, but to acknowledge you in all our ways so that you will make our paths straight. We pray this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Well, I wonder, has anyone here ever read or heard a promise from our Lord, maybe from his word or in a sermon, and thought to yourself, wow, that is never going to happen? Be honest, because I think we deal with a lot of this cynicism at times. And when we're thinking about the promises of the Lord, if we read these promises and look at this and say, Lord, how in the world are you going to keep that promise? Because from my perspective, it looks impossible. I'm sure we've experienced this in different ways. Let me give you an example that I experienced last week as we were standing right here praying for our missionaries last week. I was just starting to think as we were praying for them and commissioning them just how many miracles it took just to get them to that point. Just the miracle of God saving them, bringing them from darkness into light, and then bringing them together as a family, and then all their training and their gifting and their calling and their fundraising. I just started counting, and it's at least five or six miracles just to get them to the point where we're able to send them out. And then once they get there, we're talking miracle upon miracle, just to get to the place where they're able to preach the gospel. And by some miracle, some are saved, and a church is raised up, and then they translate the gospel into that language, and then leave a healthy church behind. And all this, by the way, while staying healthy, guarding their life and their doctrine. I just lost track how many miracles it would really take to get that job done. I started to think this must sound insane to our world, that we're, we're sending them out to do something like this. It must sound like we're telling them, you know what, go out and hunt unicorns or something. Right? Train them to sing and dance and then bring them back to us. That probably sounds more realistic than sending our missionaries out to our world. And we can begin to think like that. This is just ridiculous. What are we doing? This is such a long shot. So why do we do it? Why do we trust that it will happen? Because God has promised. God has said at the end of time, a great multitude that no one can number from every nation, from all the tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, crying out loud with one voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb. God says that's where history is headed. And that's what we believe. That I do realize that we have moments where we struggle to believe that, don't we? Where we feel like that promise, Lord, seems so far off and so out of touch. I think we experience this maybe even with other promises of God. Maybe when you hear Romans 8, 28, all things work together for the good for those who are called according to God's purpose. We think, really, Lord? All things? All things. What about my child walking away from the faith after years of me preaching the gospel to them? 
What about my spouse leaving me after so many years of being together? You're saying, this is for my good? Are you kidding me? Or maybe when we hear Jesus say in John 14, 13, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. And we think, Lord, is that really true? Because I have prayed, I have wept, I have preached the gospel tirelessly to my dad and my mom, my son, my daughter, my friends, and they are more hard-hearted than ever. It appears to me it would glorify you to save them, Lord, so why aren't you keeping this promise? Why does this feel like such a long shot that they would be saved? God, are you faithful or not? I think we have a lot of moments in the Christian life where we feel this way. What do we do in moments like this? When we really have no external reasons to trust God's promises will come true. From our perspective, it seems like the promises of God are failing. Like God himself is abandoning us. I think what we need to do in moments like that is we need to run to passages like Genesis 24 and 25. Run to these scriptures because it's here we see, we're reminded that God is faithful. That God keeps all his promises. Not just some of his promises. Not just most of his promises. Not just the promises we really want him to keep. God keeps all his promises. And we see that in the life of Abraham. We've seen that already in the book of Genesis. We will continue to see that in the book of Genesis. But that is put on display so beautifully here at the end of chapter 24 and 25. So as we wrap up the story in chapter 24, I want to draw your attention first to Isaac's faith. We've looked at Rebekah's faith. We've looked at the servant's faith. We've even looked at Abraham's faith in the last few weeks. Now we're going to look at Isaac's faith at the end of this chapter. And then as we get into chapter 25, we'll see God's faithfulness. We've already seen it, but we'll see another reminder as we see him keeping all of his promises to Abraham and to his offspring. So that's where we're headed today, Isaac's faith and God's faithfulness. So as we look at chapter 24, we see Isaac's faith. I want to remind you, we have Isaac here, silent. He doesn't speak a word in this whole narrative. And at the end of the chapter, he's living in the promised land, but he's in a really hopeless place, isn't he? He's in this place grieving the loss of his mother, we find out at the end of this chapter, who he lost three years earlier. And he's feeling very lonely because he he doesn't have a wife. He's not married yet. And unfortunately, Abraham won't let him leave the promised land. You remember that. We saw that in verse 8 of chapter 24. He's the heir of all things, as it says in Romans 4.13. He's the heir of all the promises of God. So Abraham doesn't want to risk him leaving the promised land. He might never come back. So Abraham says, no, Isaac stays. Isaac stays here. So here we have the seed of the woman, the offspring of Abraham, in the promised land with no wife and no seed, no children. And just like his father before him, the clock is ticking. Abraham's about 40 years old. At this point, 40 years old when he gets married, we find that out in chapter 25. And his only hope, all of his hopes rest on this servant bringing him back a wife. And his servant left months ago, perhaps even years ago. We're talking 1,200 mile journey on foot with all those camels and an entourage to follow him. That would take months if not years. 
See, Isaac has no external reasons to believe that God's going to keep his promises. He might assume that the servant is just lost and gone and, and will never come back. So from his perspective, it looks like God has failed him. He hasn't kept his word. So what does Isaac do? Does he panic? Does he curse God? Does he curse his father? You wasted my life. I'm stuck here just wasting away my days. Does he try to take matters into his own hands? Look for a wife among the Canaanite women. Right? Of course they don't serve the same God. But Isaac could turn them. A little missionary dating, you know, never hurt anybody. That's sarcasm, by the way. Don't believe that. We need a sign, a sarcasm sign or something. That missionary dating is not a good idea, but I'm sure it could be tempting to Isaac here. Plus, if he were to marry a daughter of one of the local rulers, that would be a good treaty. That would do him well in the future. So there's a temptation there. And what does Isaac do? Does he panic? Does he take matters into his own hands? No. In a hopeless, helpless situation, what do we find him doing? Meditating on God's promises. Trusting in the Lord. Look at verse 62, chapter 24. Now Isaac had returned from Beer Lahairoi and was dwelling in the Negev. Now let me pause there for a moment because there's an interesting detail I want to point out. Beer Lahairoi is probably some place that we don't recognize, but we've seen it before. We saw it in Genesis 16 with the story of Hagar, if you remember. Hagar was sent off from Abraham's family. Sarah cast her out and she was hopeless. She was in Beer Lahairoi and she thought she was going to die and her son Ishmael was going to die. But then God found her. He saw her and an angel of the Lord encouraged her and provided for her. So she called that place the well of him who sees. That's what Beer Lahairoi means. And now what do we find? Isaac is in the place where God saw Hagar. Isaac, hoping to be seen by God, hoping to have his needs met by God as well, like God met the needs of Hagar. And so what do we see him doing? Verse 63. Isaac went out to meditate or to pray in the field toward evening. I just love this. In this hopeless situation, where does he go? He goes to where his help comes from. He goes to the source of his hope. He goes to God in prayer, meditating on God's promises. In this way, Isaac is the blessed man of Psalm 1. Remember the blessed man, Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season, and its leaf does not wither. In all he does, he prospers. Now we know for certain that this blessed man is truly Jesus Christ, our Lord. He was the only one to faithfully delight in God's law, to meditate it on both day and night, and to obey it perfectly in our place, so that he could be the perfect sacrifice for people like Isaac who we'll see has a lot of sin coming up in the near chapters. It's like us as well. So Isaac here is being a shadow of Christ, finding his hope in the promises of God, which are pointing all the way to Jesus when he can't find any other hope 
in his circumstances. And this is beautiful because we saw this in Abraham's servant. We saw this in Rebecca. We saw it in Abraham. All the people involved here are looking to the Lord in faith. We also see here that Isaac is a lot like his father, Abraham. You might remember it was Abraham's habit to go out and pray to the Lord. There's one particular evening in Genesis 15 that I want to draw your attention to. You remember as Abraham is struggling, he's not able to have kids, and God actually brings him outside in the evening, and Abraham's just pouring out his heart. Lord, are you going to keep your word? I still don't have an offspring. I'm getting old. Sarah's getting old. This is not looking good. And God brings him outside and gives him the sign in the stars. Remember what God said. He said, look toward heaven, Genesis 15, 5, and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said, so shall your offspring be. And now we find Isaac, like his father, trusting in the promises near the evening as the stars are coming out. I don't know for sure if he's looking at the stars and seeing this promise. Perhaps he is. I like to hope he would. But as he's trusting in the Lord, it's being displayed over his head as the stars come out. And I love what happens next. Just like when the servant prayed at the well. And before he was done praying, Rebecca just showed up as an answer to his prayer, interrupting his prayer. Now we find Isaac praying, trusting the Lord under the stars, this picture, this sign of God's promise. And as he's meditating, he's interrupted by the answer to his prayer. God is so abundantly faithful. Look at verse 63, the middle of verse 63. Speaking of Isaac, it says, And he lifted up his eyes. Now, that doesn't just mean see. If it did, he wouldn't say, and he saw next. This is an idiom. He lifted up his eyes. is a way to say, especially in the book of Genesis, he's lifting up his eyes. He's looking with desire. There's a hope there. As he's meditating the Lord, he lifts up his eyes and saw, and behold, there were camels coming. Maybe this is the one. And Rebekah lifted up her eyes when she saw Isaac. She looks on Isaac with the same hope. She dismounted from the camel. The language there in Hebrew is really funny. It's that she fell off the horse. That's the idea. It's almost like she got down as fast as she possibly could because she was excited. And said to the servant, who is that man walking in the field to meet us? And the servant said, it is my master. That's interesting. I thought he was the servant of Abraham. Well, he is. But here's the thing now. He's acknowledging that Isaac is his master because Isaac is the new patriarch. The promises are being passed to him. And so this servant is a servant of Isaac now. So she took her veil and covered herself. Now this, of course, is a cultural sign of modesty and respect and submission. Perhaps it's even a little bit of a hint of her godly character we saw earlier in the chapter. At the bare minimum, Rebecca is showing Isaac here that she is not married, but she'd like to be. She's the one that Isaac had been waiting for. He sees that before he even sees her. Verse 66. And the servant told Isaac all the things that he had done. 
I'm a little surprised they don't go into the details again because you remember this servant has told this story two times already to all the people in the other part of the story. But now he recounts all the events to Isaac, all the miracles that God accomplished to bring Rebekah to this place. But now Isaac has a really important decision, a really important choice. Will he receive the gracious provision of God in Rebekah as his wife as a gift from God? As an answer to his prayers and to the promises of the Lord? Or will he be like Lot? Who you remember also lifted up his eyes with desire. But he lifted up his eyes away from what God provided to Sodom and Gomorrah. You remember this story? In Genesis chapter 13, Abraham gave him this crazy offer, said, Lot, you can choose of any land in the promised land to settle in. You can have your first choice. And Lot lifted up his eyes. And he looked over there at Sodom and Gomorrah and saying, grass sure is green over there. In fact, it looks like the Garden of Eden. And so Lot chose that instead of what God provided. Lot was living by sight and not by faith. He rejects God's provision of the promised land for something that looks better in his eyes. I would imagine this would have been a temptation for Isaac. You think in this moment, I mean, Isaac could have said, I don't know about this. Can we slow things down a little bit? This is going really fast. I haven't even seen your face. I would like to see your face. I'm going to be looking at it for the rest of my life. So this is a moment, a big moment. Isaac could have said, is this the wisest move? Sounds like you picked the first girl that just came along. And you know this is an important decision. You've seen how bad marriages have wrecked my family in the past and will continue to wreck his family. Shouldn't we slow this down? Shouldn't we get to know each other first? Isaac could have gone to all these places, but he didn't. He obeys immediately. That's the language here. It's a lot like Rebecca when she realizes, oh, this is the will of the Lord. Let's do this. So Isaac receives God's gracious provision of a wife in Rebekah. He receives it by faith, trusting in the promises, the provision that God has made. And he pretty much marries Rebekah on the spot. Look at verse 67. Then Isaac brought her into the tent of Sarah, his mother. Symbolically showing there, this is the new matriarch. The new patriarch has now found his matriarch. And he took Rebekah. That's received her as a gift from God, a gracious gift, provision for God, a fulfillment of the promises. And she became his wife. And then he loved her. That's how it works with arranged marriages there, right? So Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. No, Isaac did love Rebekah. I think it's interesting that Isaac is the only patriarch who never took another wife. Never even took another concubine. In the words of 1 Timothy 3, he is a one-woman man. Always has been. There's a lot we can learn from Isaac's faith, especially what we do in hopeless situations. What do you do when you're losing hope in God's promises? When life seems to be falling apart and God's promises don't seem to be any closer than ever. What's your reaction? What's your response? Kids, do you doubt God's word? Do you doubt God's promises? You think, well, my parents' God is just not for me, I guess. He's not in this. He doesn't have my best interests in mind. He's not providing what I think I really need, so I'll run to the world. 
I'll see what they have to offer me because God is not coming through for me. Adults, do you get impatient with God keeping his promises? Do you try to take matters into your own hands and say, well, I guess if God's not showing up, I guess I'll do it myself. I will even break God's law to get what I think I really need. I'll lie, cheat, steal, do whatever it takes to get ahead. Because if God's not going to do it, I have to do it myself. And that's the way the world works, right? I'll slander my enemies, even some of my closest friends, just to get some sense of justice for myself. Because I can't wait on the one who says, vengeance is mine, I will repay. He's not going to come through. Or maybe we just think, what God has provided is not enough. Maybe God has been faithful, provided what you need, but not what you want. Maybe you live in this constant state of discontentment and frustration in your life, always looking for a new job, a new wife or husband, a new church, a new car, a new home, whatever it might be, because God hasn't provided what you really need. Please don't get me wrong. There are good reasons to leave a job, to move away, to go to another state. There are plenty of good reasons for those kinds of things. But some of us are discontent no matter where we go even with what God has provided for us right now, because we really don't believe that he is a good father who gives good gifts to his children. Brothers and sisters, is this how we respond? When life gets tough, when the promises of God fail, or do we run to God's word? Do we go again to God's promise, depending on God's character, remembering who our God is, meditating on his promises? Going to God in prayer, going to corporate worship where we're reminded of those promises, singing of those promises. Do we trust in the Lord with all of our hearts, leaning not on our own understanding? Oh, that's the hard part, isn't it? Acknowledging him in all of our ways, knowing he will make our paths straight. Brothers and sisters, our God is faithful. He's never broken a promise. He never will. He will actually provide what you really need. It will always be what you want, but you can trust him to provide exactly what you need, just like he did here with Isaac, because we know he's good and does good. So we've seen Isaac's faith in a hopeless situation. Let's now look at God's faithfulness. First to Isaac at the end of chapter 24 and then 25. Look at verse 67 one more time in chapter 24. It says, Then Isaac brought her into the tent of Sarah, his mother, and took Rebekah, and she became his wife, and he loved her. And listen, so Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. I love that sentence. And you'll notice it's not necessary for the story. This is a great story, isn't it? It ends in a wedding. How much better could you get for an ending? To a beautiful woman, a godly girl. God even kept his promise. The line of Abraham, the offspring of Abraham is preserved. This is a happily ever after without that last sentence. But that last sentence speaks volumes to who our God is. It shows us that our God isn't just the God of the big plan, the big picture. 
In other words, he's not just the God that guides history to its intended end and ignores all the hurting and struggling and difficulties of his people along the way. God's not a God that says, well, the end justifies the means. They're headed in the right direction. It's okay if some of their little needs don't get met along the way because they're getting to the right place. They'll thank me there. They'll get over it as long as they're getting to the right place. No, that is not our God. This verse proves it. God kept his promises. He preserved the line of Abraham and he comforted Isaac. He met Isaac's individual need because he was lonely. He was grieving the loss of his mom. Yes, God cares about even little needs like that, and he cares about his big plan. It's not one or the other. I love what Del Ralph Davis says about this. He says, Isaac isn't just a cog in God's plan for the world. He's a hurting person for whom God cares deeply. Brothers and sisters, this is our God. He's transcendent and sovereign and glorious and holy. He's Yahweh. But he's also the God of our fathers. He's also the God that is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He is good and does good. You know, my worry is that there's some here that might start to believe things like, you know what, I'm kind of just lost in God's crowd. Some of you young people in particular that grow up in the church might feel this way. I think we're very individualistic in our society, but when you grow up in the church hearing all this corporate language, you can forget this. You think, well, God doesn't see my heartache. He doesn't see my struggles and all my little needs along the way. He's far too busy with the big plan, making all things work. But it's okay if most things, most things work for my good, but not all things. That's not who God is. That's not what he's promised us. God is the God who keeps count of our tossings. He puts our tears in his bottle and keeps track of them in his book, it says in Psalm 56.8. He cares about even the most intimate and small details of our life, like the hairs on our head and how we're going to be provided for. You are never lost in the crowd when it comes to God. He knows your need more than you know yourself. So if you ever doubt he won't come through with what you really need, look to the scripture. God's the one that comforts Isaac as he keeps all of his promises. And why does he do this? Because he's faithful. He's faithful. And this is just the beginning of the promises he kept. Look at chapter 25, verse 1, as we see his faithfulness to Abraham and to his offspring in keeping his promises. Chapter 25, verse 1. Abraham took another wife. Really, it's his concubine, we find out in verse 6, someone like Hagar, whose name was Keturah. She bore him Zimran, Jokshan, Medan, Midian, Ishbek, and Shua. Now, if you're reading this, you're probably thinking, well, wait a minute, when did this happen? Did this happen after Sarah died? After Isaac was grown up and all those things? Well, probably not. If you remember in Genesis 17, Abraham thought he was too old to have kids. He thought it was impossible for him to have any more kids at 100 years old. And he's able to father six more kids? Well, it's certainly possible. God can clearly do it. But those kids would be even more of a miracle than Isaac was in many ways. 
So it's possible that this wife came after Sarah, but chronologically speaking, the story in Genesis doesn't always go in chronological order. We have an example even in this chapter. We see Abraham's death, and then we still have him talking to his people in the very next verses. After his sons are born, his grandsons are born. So it's not always in chronological order. So my best guess is that Abraham took Keturah, his wife, around the time of Hagar, potentially. Maybe even before that, or maybe a little bit after that, but definitely before Sarah. Now you can disagree with me there, it's not essential, but it still poses a big question then. Why even talk about it? Why bring it up now instead of when it was happening, if it really did happen? What's Moses' purpose in putting it here at the end of Abraham's life? I think he has two purposes here. First, Moses wants to show that God kept a very particular promise to Abraham. A promise in Genesis 17.5. You remember when God changed Abram's name to Abraham, what that meant? Genesis 17.5. No longer shall you be named Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. Why? For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. You're not just the father of Ishmael, that nation, and all those nations, or Isaac. Now we have 16 descendants of Abraham in chapter 25. And you'll notice a lot of those become independent nations. Some of those are a big pain for Israel down the road. You notice the Midianites there, right? But this proves, once again, God kept his promise. Abraham, at the end of his life, has already become the father of many nations. But I believe Moses has a second reason for including that here. He wants to show that Isaac alone is the heir of the promises. Not this other woman and her kids. Isaac alone. Look at verse 5. Jump down to verse 5. Abraham gave all he had to Isaac because he was the heir. But to the sons of his concubines, that's the woman listed beforehand, Abram gave gifts. And while he was still living, he sent them away from his son Isaac eastward to the east country. That was a normal cultural practice to bless your children, even the ones of your concubines, and to send them out like this. So Abraham is taking care of his family in a good way here. But he sends them off, you'll notice, out of the promised land. Eastward, which in the book of Genesis is not a good sign. That's away from God when they go east. This seems like a sad day. Why is he pushing them away? Well, because Isaac, Isaac is the one that all the promises have been passed to. And these nations, we find later on, are going to be a mess for the nation of Israel. So Abraham's starting to separate those nations from God's people because the promises are being passed down to Isaac and him alone. God is keeping his promises even at the end of Abraham's life. And he's not done yet. Look at verse 7. These are the days of the years of Abraham's life. 175 years. I heard one of you whistle when we read that. It's old, isn't it? Very old. You think about what this means? Abraham lived 75 years after he thought it was too old for him to have kids. That's more than some of us will live probably. This means he spent a hundred years living in the promised land. Sojourning, living in tents. That's a long time to live in the tents in the promised land. Abraham was blessed to dwell in the promised land. This also means he got to see his grandsons being born, Jacob and Esau. We find out about them in the next few verses. He would have been 160 when they are born. And look at verse 8. Abraham breathed his last. 
and died in a good old age, an old man full of years, and was gathered to his people. Moses chose those words very carefully because this, once again, is a fulfillment of God's promise. God's promise from Genesis 15, 15, when he says, As for you, Abraham, you shall go to your fathers in peace. And listen, you shall be buried in a good old age. Now, we know the story of Abraham. We know sometimes it looked like he would never survive. There were moments it looked like God would not keep that promise, but God preserved Abraham to a good old age, 175 years. God kept his word. And he continues, verse 9, Isaac and Ishmael, his sons, buried him in the cave of Machpelah. Now, you know Isaac and Ishmael did not get along. Some of their drama and their problems caused all the issues with Hagar from the beginning. These are enemies. But they come together for Abraham's funeral. A blessing to have his kids come together in the last days and be there. It says a lot about who Abraham is and was. And a blessing to see that at the end of his life. Look at the middle of verse 8. Look at where this funeral takes place. In the field of Ephraim, the son of Zohar, the Hittite, east of Mamre, the field that Abraham purchased from the Hittites. There Abraham was buried with Sarah, his wife. This is beautiful. At the end of his days, he actually owns a small piece of the promised land. This burial plot where he rests next to Sarah, his wife. Again, this is a fulfillment of what God said. God said in Genesis 13, lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward. For all the land that you see, I will give to you, Abraham, and to your offspring forever. And what's the next verse? After the death of Abraham, God blessed Isaac, his son. And Isaac settled at Beer Lahairoi. Isaac settled in the promised land. God kept his word. What an incredible story. Promise after promise after promise. God is fulfilling in Isaac and in his offspring and in Abraham's life. God didn't leave out one of his promises. But we need to remember here. Abraham's offspring is not just Isaac. It's not just Ishmael. It's not just these children here listed in chapter 24 and 25. No, Abraham's offspring is Jesus Christ our Lord. He is the true offspring of Abraham. And we are his children as well. Spiritual offspring in Christ. Don't forget what Hebrews 11 taught us. 11.13 says, Abraham died in faith. How did he die in faith? Not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar. His desire was for a better country, that is, a heavenly one. You see, the blessing of Abraham was not that all the promises of God found their only fulfillment while he was still alive or at the end of his life. It's not that he was just buried in the promised land and had an offspring, Isaac, to look forward to. He looked to better promises. He looked to a better promised land. Even a better offspring, who is Jesus Christ our Lord. And he is the true offspring because he's the one that truly blesses all the nations in bringing salvation to the ends of the earth. He is the seed of the woman, the child of Abraham that would crush Satan forever by living the life that we failed to live, that Isaac failed to live, that Abraham failed to live. 
He would fulfill the righteousness that we needed. And on the cross, he would pay our debt of sin, taking the wrath of God upon himself so that we could have eternal life, raising from the dead so that we can be welcomed into the promised land of heaven forever. Abraham died in faith because he was looking through Isaac to Jesus, his final offspring. Remember, Jesus said, Abraham rejoiced to see my day. Why did he rejoice? Because he knew that every promise of God found its yes and amen in Jesus Christ our Lord. In 2 Corinthians 1.20 says, and we know that in Christ we are his spiritual offspring. Abraham has spiritual offering numerous as the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore. That's what Paul teaches us in Galatians 3, verse 7. Know then, that is those of faith, those that are faith in Christ, who are the sons of Abraham. It is those who are of faith who are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. All these promises come together in Christ and to us in Christ. You know, one of the most beautiful things about this text, the saddest moment is that all these people are sent away from the promised land. And you think, wow, how terrible, this act of judgment. But in Isaiah 60, these nations are all listed again. It's the only time in the Bible all these nations are listed again, one by one. And you know why they're listed there? Because they're returning to our Lord. They're coming back in the true offspring of Abraham, through the true offspring of Abraham, which is Jesus Christ our Lord. Listen to Isaiah 60, verse 6. A multitude of camels shall cover you, the young camels of Midian and Ephah. All those from Sheba shall come. They shall bring gold and frankincense, and shall bring good news, the praises of the Lord. All the flocks of Kedar shall be gathered to you. The rams of Nebaioth shall minister to you. They shall come with acceptance on my altar, and I will beautify my beautiful house. This is beautiful, that God keeps his promises to Abraham by bringing all of his children back all the nations back under Christ our Lord. As the gospel is preached and they're trusting in him, they're returning to him in faith. How do we know? Because that hasn't happened yet. How do we know God will keep that promise that all the nations will return? Because our God is faithful. He's been faithful to Isaac. He's been faithful to Abraham. And we see that especially in Jesus Christ our Lord. And if God would not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also in him graciously give us all things? Brothers and sisters, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make your paths straight. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for your word. Lord, we repent for losing sight of your plan, your promises, forever doubting your goodness and your faithfulness. We know, Lord, those doubts and those worries creep up into our heart as we've seen them in your people already in this book. But, Lord, as we draw near to your word, as we're reminded of what you have already done through Abraham, Isaac, and then now later in Jacob, and especially in Christ, Father, help us to trust you. Help us to have confidence in your word and in your character, even if we don't have any confidence in our circumstances. Help us, Father, to 
repent and trust you and walk in faithfulness, knowing you are a good father who provides what we need. And I pray, Father, you would be glorified in your children through us as we go out and preach the gospel so that more people will hear. I pray this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.